You're listening to WCAT Radio, your home for authentic Catholic programming. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Cynthia Tulin Wilson, and I'm here tonight with Francis Etheridge. We've had many uh, interviews so far, and I'm looking forward to another good one. So this uh, tonight we're starting a trilogy called From Truth to Truth, and uh, it's volume one that we're going to re- talk about, and that's Faithful Reason. How are you, Francis? Uh, very well, thank you. Um, shall we begin with a prayer? Yes, please. Okay. Um, well, I'll invoke the seat of wisdom, Mary's seat of wisdom. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Happy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Right, well, faithful reason has a, a starting point, in a way, in the very term reason because it can appear to be a disembodied faculty, the fact that we think. And I was even uh, looking up the statue by Rodin of the thinker um, Mm -hmm. who's sitting with his forehead on his fist and pondering. In one sense, that makes sense that a person should pause and ponder and think. But in another way, uh, owing to the uh, research on the word reason, um, it's too abstract. And what the research turned up was that the very term reason has to do with handling what we think through that is in our hands and I think this sense of um, the engagement of our hands brings more to the fore the whole person who is thinking and the engagement with something so for example one of the uh, characteristics of the universe, indeed the world in which we live, is its very capacity to go from what we would call in scriptural language the literal to the spiritual sense. So, for example, I can be um, pulling up weeds and digging in the soil and planting something And it's very easy to go from those activities as literally what I'm doing to considering, well, what in what way does a weed stand for something like a vice or an undesirable characteristic that I want to be rid of? And so the sense of engagement through our reason not only speaks of an involvement of the whole person, 
who is doing the thinking? Who is turning over the soil? Who is planting or weeding? But it also, in a way, picks up on the fact that the universe has this characteristic, that in its very relationship to me and to others, it's incredibly capable of being turned not just literally through our fingers as we consider what soil is and whether it's dry or moist and whether we're going to water it or not, but actually in its characteristic of being able to be turned into imagery that expresses ourselves. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, that there is a very real um, relationship. And I do wonder if this is another way of arguing that there must be a creator, one who brought to exist not just me or not just it in the sense of the universe, but the very fact that we are in this relationship. So whether it's fire and its well-known biblical relationship to expressing the Holy Spirit, or in terms of ancient philosophy, it being one of the characteristics of matter uh, to be expressed in terms of uh, what changes. Uh, that This wholesomeness, this capacity for us to not just dialogue with ourselves, but with what exists, is kind of enfolded or embraced in what the what reality is like as well as how it brings us out of ourselves in order to know it and so um this this starting point then is very much about um being engaged with uh how we actually are rather than a more disembodied sense of what it is to reason. Now, certainly there are chains of reason. And from that point of view, uh, we can go off in different directions. But I think the point of uh, starting with the very vivid sense of what goes through our hands is much more about um, bringing to the fore everything that characterizes us and everything that characterizes uh, the world in which we live. And so, um, even from the point of view of being tired, you know, it, mm-hmm. it is often much more difficult uh, to think when we're tired or um, conversely when we're excited, you know, and our thoughts accelerate. You know, this sense of the whole person being expressed. And then also, you know, there's a tendency um, for us to refer to the senses as if in some way the senses are detached from us. They're not an intrinsic part of how uh, reason functions. But if I um, think about the sensitivity of a sculptor, 
you know, who has his chisel in his hand, or the lover, the person whose touch is touching another person, or the musician whose um, sensitivity is expressed in the uh, modulations of a string or touching the notes of a piano. There isn't the same sense of the senses being separate to the person as if they're simply a kind of data input that we receive and think about. That more the senses are a vehicle for our reasoning, a vehicle for our investigations. So perception is also a very intelligent activity. You know, we are looking for something. You know, when it's a case of gathering evidence. Yes, on the one hand, like the ancient philosopher Aristotle, who was excellent at gathering both the opinions of others but also the material evidence. You know, what is it that uh, he was gathering? You know, on the one hand, it's true. It is the opinions of others. You know, when, for example, um, life begins, you know, what is the soul? You know, there can be all kinds of gathering of opinions. But on the other hand, there is also this... Uh, Active perception, you know, I mean, if, for example, I'm working in the garden and I pick up lettuce seed, which is tiny, you know, it's, it's like the end of a needle and you use a, a little stick that you might put uh, marshmallows on over a fire in order to uh, roast the marshmallows. Well, you can use this very slender stick to pick up one lettuce seed at a time as opposed to a potato which is a much greater kind of seed as it starts to sprout now these simple observations do actually lead into what is um, a beginning and so rather than just considering sort of abstract terms you know, to look at a seed uh, like a lettuce seed and to see it sprout, you're not looking at something that goes through transitions in an arbitrary way, but actually very quickly takes um, a stem and little leaves and so very quickly is manifesting what it is. Now, one of the great... Uh, problems you could say in understanding the human person and the origin of personhood is this uh, difficulty that people have with imagining that there can be a seed from which through the coming together of the husband and wife and a mysterious action of God which brings the soul to exist at the same time that from this seed there can emerge the human person not as something subsequent to the moment of fertilization but as an unfolding of it. now this seems so difficult for us to visualize 
But when actually we are looking at plants and how they grow, you know, there is this remarkable significance. On the one hand, you have a seed that when planted and moistened doesn't go through changes which are other than what it's going to be, but rather goes through changes that manifest what it is. And that's precisely um, the way one kind of investigation can help and unfold another. Because while it's so much more difficult for us to grasp because of its hidden nature, although uh, there are now photographs showing the early development of the human person, in the case of a very simple illustration, to see how a seed changes uh, makes it very clear in a way, in a very simple way. And again, it comes back to this uh, reason handling something to help us understand. And uh, St. Thomas Aquinas would say when we're uh, pondering spiritual realities, uh, we need to have recourse to a concrete image or expression. And so in a certain way, it's natural for us to uh, take something that is more familiar, that is around us, to help us consider, you know, what is uh, the nature of conception? What is the nature of a beginning? And from the... Uh, considerations that emerge, it seems far more logical, if you like, far more characteristic of how a beginning takes place, that there is not a series of stages, as Aristotle once thought, a plant stage, an animal stage, and the stage of the rational ensoulment of a human being. Rather, there is, in its simplicity, an unfolding from a single point of departure, namely conception itself. Because actually, when we consider other beginnings, you know, when we consider the beginning of a, a plant, when we consider the beginning of a lettuce seed, the beginning of a potato, we see there is something that exists. And that... Um, and it's from that beginning of what exists that there then unfolds, not something else, but what that species is. And while it seems very um, obvious, it isn't, I think it, it's necessary uh, for people to consider these very obvious points of departure because there are many misconceptions around the beginning of the human person as if it's some kind of bubbling of cells some kind of incoherent or chaotic point of departure but when we consider beginnings they're far from chaotic they're far from arbitrary or incoherent uh, what we see is um, this inert start and that's one of the things that struck me recently as I was 
planting these lettuce seeds, that this seed is inert and something starts it. And in a discussion um, with a person with a very much more um, scientific background to myself in the sense of the sciences, he said, where there is life, there is uh, electrical impulses. So, on the one hand, we have this inert seed uh, planted in moist soil, the moisture being significant because it's a conductor of electric electricity. And what we find is that this moist seed takes a start. It begins. And um, there is this extraordinary parallel because on the one hand, we have um, the seed and how it uh, develops once it's in the moist soil. But then also, there is this inertia in the ovum. Prior to fertilization by the um, male sperm, the ovum is inert. It has this characteristic readiness. Now, there seems to be almost uh, a likeness between um, the inert lettuce seed and the ovum, the egg, because the ovum or the egg is inert. The mitochondrial activity is nil. But on fertilization, it rapidly uh, develops, multiplies, uh, goes through all kinds of stages and uh, processes of development. Similarly, the lettuce seed, as it's moistened, so it starts to spring into life. So there is something very simple um, to help us in the world around us, in all kinds of ways. But this fundamental one, of analogies between uh, different events, different kinds of beginning, again, plays into this uh, characteristic of the universe as a whole, that um, it can convey meanings in multiple ways. Um, and this itself speaks of the coherence of what exists as um, we would say, as created. And one of the uh, great advantages of looking at the universe from the point of view of it being created is it gives one more a sense of the wholeness of what exists. If we take a more ancient idea, namely that matter has always existed, you then introduce, uh, in a platonic sense, a form that then changes that matter into something specific. So there would be the platonic form of the horse that would then transform that matter into the horse. And at the same time, it's some kind of eternal existence. So, on the one hand, it has a, a resonance 
we could say, between an idea in God that then takes form in a particular creature. But then also we have this kind of dichotomy between matter that's always existing and then a form that comes out of eternity, as it were, to change it, to make it something. Now, in a way, that's also in Aristotle, because I think Aristotle also held the view that matter was eternal. But in his case, there was a much more intimate connection between what we call the form or the soul of a living creature and the matter. Uh, They entered into each other in a much more intimate way, such that um, in the language that was taken up in philosophy, it can be said that form and matter constitute one substance. They're not two substances joined, as it were. The, the one is intimately interconnected with the other, so that we're, we're uh, expressing one substance, one human person, one plant, one animal. But at the same time, even Aristotle has this limitation of there being matter which is then informed. So there isn't, if you like, a fundamental unity. And so one of the things that arises when going back to, you know, looking at these seeds and watching them grow, or looking at a potato and seeing it sprout uh, before it's then cut up so that those sprouts can grow into the plant and the plant into uh, producing the potatoes, which incidentally um, grow out of the roots on a placenta-like tube. I mean, extraordinary, really, you, that you have this potato plant and... Uh, It has these long tubes that come out of the bottom of the plant and at the end of which you then get the formation of the potato, small or large, according to how it's grown. And so um, you have these characteristics and a variety of ways of growing, but at the same time you have this sense of the wholeness of each entity, the wholeness of the lettuce plant, the wholeness of the potato. And in that sense, um, it almost seems more credible that that behind all that exists or expressed in everything that exists is a wholeness in the conception of it. You know, if you consider a person who's designing a sculpture, like we were considering Rodin. You know, in a sense, that thinker is an expression of a whole idea of the artist um, as it's embodied in the material. For all the fact that there is a process uh, shaping the matter, uh, Aristotle would call uh, the variety of causes there, uh, one of which would be the kind of material and its impact on the design. Another is the end goal. 
another is the instrument by which the object is shaped, instrumental cause. But at the same time, all these things come together to produce one artifact, the thinker. And in many ways, although this takes place through time, what we actually are recognizing is that the goal of the artist, the goal of the sculpture, is one thing, is the thinker. And it makes so much more sense then to consider the plant. You know, um, when I look at it, it doesn't go through unrecognizable changes. On the contrary, it, as soon as it can, expresses what it is. Now, clearly, there are incredibly subtle changes that go on in the soil and are scarcely visible to the, uh, the ordinary eye. But at the same time, uh, they're there and they take place and they show themselves in the first shoot that arises out of the soil, uh, sometimes even with the kind of seed shell being carried by the plant as it grows out of the soil. And you have then this sense of the object as a whole. And clearly, because it's growing out of the soil, you've got not just the fact that the, the plant is there and the plant is growing, but the, the whole sense of it in its ecological environment, you know, uh, receiving the moistness in the soil, uh, the soil itself and all its characteristics, you know, whether it's got manure in or whether it's got rotted vegetables in that are broken down in a compost, whether it's got uh, soil from the ground, whether it's got uh, compost that's come from uh, a cultivated source, and the whole thing mixed in. You know, you have all these uh, elements to uh, the growth of the seed. It doesn't just accidentally uh, grow. It grows in an environment that suits it, that brings out what it is. And so in, in many ways, you know, actually uh, putting one's hands in the dirt, as it were, uh, pulling up weeds, um, looking closely at plants as they develop, you know, it's possible to notice all kinds of things which go in all kinds of directions. And I think this um, returning philosophy back to its source through this original meaning of reason to turn things through the hand as part of thinking through what they are is very important. And not only that, I mean, returning to the kind of fact that we are, according to St. John Paul II, we are all called to be philosophers. We are all naturally philosophical. We are all capable of thinking through what we see, understanding what it is, whether it involves research or conversation or 
uh, in whatever way we've investigated what is around us, what we are, and so we are also unfolding what it is to be a person engaged in the realities uh, or the reality in which we live. And that brings out this sense uh, to which I'm returning of reason not being disembodied, of it expressing our interest. Uh, um, Aristotle himself said, uh, philosophy begins in wonder. You know, we look at something and we wonder. I mean, in St. John Paul II's uh, work on philosophy, his work on faith and reason, you know, he speaks of the wonder that something exists at all. You know, why does it exist as opposed to there being nothing? Why is there something as opposed to there being nothing? And um, we can engage in a very concrete way and see uh, almost literally that our sight is not simply a kind of function of light passing through the lens and uh, stimulating the cells in the eye and then through the optic nerve into the brain. As if in some sense there's a kind of passive receptivity to all that um, goes on, which there is. I mean, insofar as we see colors and we see shapes, you know, these things aren't our invention. You know, this is what the draftsman does, you know, in drawing, or this is what the engineer does in making use of materials. But at the same time, our perceptive powers, as it were, are active. You know, as much as we are in receiving or in receipt of the input of the senses, we are certainly going out in our uh, search for what it is that is in front of us. You know, whether it's understanding the growth of a plant or whether it's admiring the colors of uh, a rose or a sunset. You know, we are going out through the very handling and sensing of what it is we're doing just as much in a sense if not more than we're just passively receiving uh, the information if it can be called that uh, through our senses so it, it's this much more um, enriched or enriched account that is a constant task really for um, recovering philosophy and the philosopher as a wholesome activity, as what emerges out of our experience and engages us in the world around us. Does that make sense? Boy, I'll say it does. I've got to tell you, you're a much deeper thinker than me. <laughs> I I am oh. just just fascinated 
You know, when you're talking about, you know, why is there something rather than nothing, which in itself is interesting, and then, all, you know, that's that's really something we have to, we really need to consider. And I love how you describe how God had this whole, you know, this whole awareness, I guess we would say, of creation and the different parts right down to the little, really down to little atomic uh, elements and things. It's, it's fascinating when you consider it that way. It's like, you know, when we think of um, the creation story where God creates this, then he creates that, in these sort of discrete uh, acts, and yet, um, you know, and ends up with a whole. It's like this gives what you're talking about gives a much clearer understanding of what it means to say creation because he knew how everything. And I mean, we knew that, but it's it's the way you put it um, that mm. everything was planned all all in an instant, so to speak, and just goes through time and space. It's really fantastic. You're definitely a deep thinker. (laughs) Well, there there is a certain sense in which um, there's no such thing as a bare fact. You know, if we consider, I mean, the very things you name there, like particles, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, there's a certain capability in what exists that it can be named. And mm-hmm. um, there is a lovely brief account of this in Genesis. You know, Adam, while on his own, names what exists and discovers mm-hmm. both who he is and how he is different from the plants and the animals. But actually, when we consider um, what exists, there is a kind of intimate marriage between an object like um, a person, or uh, perhaps we take something simpler, like a a chair. You know, that it has a design as a whole, uh, it's material, But then we can also um, name it more intimately, you might say, speaking about the grain of the wood. And the grain of the wood tells us about its growth. If there's a knot in the wood, it tells us that there was a branch coming out at that particular part in the uh, branch or trunk, depending where the wood is cut from. You know, there is a sense in which the world, reality, is susceptible to perception in such a way it can be named more and more intimately, you know, right down, as you say, to the particles. And even the particles are innumerable. And some of them have these extraordinary names like quark or strange or uh, more familiar ones perhaps are proton, neutron, an electron and their spins and how they interact. Now, this sense of the universe being accessible to our intelligence, and not just accessible, but identifiable, 
sort of allows us uh, to, to always to go further. But at the same time, you know, we can also draw back and see, well, actually, nothing exists but that it, it can be expressed in, uh, I always want to say, innumerable details. You know, on the one hand, you have the wholeness of an object, whether it's a chair that we've made or whether it's a plant that exists uh, like a rose. Now, on the one hand, you have some incredible geometric shapes. You have, you know, almost identical left and right sides of a leaf or, you know, wonderful curves and circles in the um, unfolding of the rose itself. But at the same time, in the very naming of a plant, in the very perceiving of it, there always seems to be something further to see, something more to be disclosed. And in that sense, you know, when we're looking at reality, we're not looking at a bare substance, as it were. You know, much as uh, the language makes sense to say that substance identifies the identity of an object and the accidents refer to what is changeable, at the same time, the accidents, as in the color, the shape, the texture are transparent to what the object is. So the potato is pale, is hard and solid, certainly before it begins to decompose. But it's not as if we're looking at something other than. So the accident, the shape, color, the surface uh, nodules are transparent to what it is that it is a potato, that it does have shoots, that it does grow into a plant. So the reality that exists is so incredibly susceptible to observation, to intelligent um, differentiation, the naming of different parts. And so, again, looking at reality, we're looking at something which is itself incredibly enriched so that we can uh, almost in a way like an onion unpeel this richness but at the same time retain the fact that it is an onion and it does have layers which belong together and indeed an outer skin that surrounds it which isn't um, at all tasty uh, and we peel it as we open the onion and cut it up for cooking. So all the um, things or objects or living things that exist have this um, penetrability, we could say, um, that suggests that their making cannot be arbitrary, nor can our relationship, our capacity, to enter into what they are, be arbitrary. The very fact that this dialogue exists between us, and I'm not even talking about between two people, but in, in the sense of a dialogue with what exists, you know, it, it always invites 
further investigations, you know, whether we're actually going to Mars via a, a satellite um, or whether we're using an electron microscope to get into the minute of some extraordinary creatures. I mean, I remember seeing a picture of a flea which had a flea on it. I mean, it was, on the one hand, itself incredibly small, but then also, um, with the magnification of this electron microscope, there was what looked like a flea on the leg of the flea. And this is something that even with magnification, we don't lose identity of what it is we're looking at. On the contrary, it seems to bring out more and more of what actually exists, what actually ordinarily is invisible, but is present. And so this sense of reality being like a gift that is openable, you know, approached in the right way, so that we perhaps need to be more contemplative, so that we're not just analyzing in the sense of taking apart, but also uh, being willing to reconstitute, reconsider the whole from which we began, so that there's always this uh, going into detail, into analysis, but at the same time also this return to the whole object, and not just to the whole object, but to our dialogue with it, its sense of being a present um, given, you could say, in the very giving of creation. You know, the whole thing has this characteristic of gift, of being a present that actually is openable, but openable, um, you know, in a way that um, brings it out its goodness, you know, that we're not just smashing something in order to get the juice out of it, but rather um, opening it perhaps more gently, more in an understanding way, so that um, a bit like how um, the world around us has, on the one hand, been exploited and, you know, resources have been sort of drawn to the point of, uh, if not extinction, exhaustion, as it were, as opposed mm -hmm. to cultivating, you know, uh, drawing less on something in order uh, to let it grow back, you know, perhaps thinking more of um, a school of fish, you know, not taking them all, but leaving uh, mm -hmm. those to reproduce and to grow. And again, not just for the sake of food, but, I mean, in these marvelous programs which show us the extraordinary delights of uh, fish around the coral reef or, I mean, the shapes of these creatures, you know, sponges or, you know, fish with tendrils or um, the most extraordinary shapes and colors. And you think to yourself, you know, this is um, an a work of the imagination. You know, it, it's not just that these things exist because of the conditions under which they live, because there is such variety. And how does that variety originate? 
you know, like the variety of painters or like the, the variety of musicians. In a sense, it originates from the uh, characteristics of the artist. You know, whether that artist is Van Gogh or Cezanne or um, an Impressionist. Now, in the same way, um, the variety of what exists seems to have m more to do, in a way, with the testament or the witness to the imagination of a creator than it does to the, the sheer, if you like, calculable varieties of uh, different um, ingredients of, um, that go to make up a creature. You know, the mm -hmm. variety of design seems to be so fantastically rich that, and so integral, you know, you have a, a creature that um, is a whole, but in being a whole is also different while similar to, you know, the varieties of crab or the varieties of spider or the varieties of fish. You know, this sense of the multiplicity of species seems to me to speak much more of the creative creativity of the imagination of God just as you know a craftsman or a painter throughout his life like Mondrian for example you know he started with trees and he went on to over a long period of time to see the trees more and more simply and the light coming through the branches to the point where he ended up with grids colored grids now, in one sense, you can see a development of the artist. In another sense, you can see his, the variety of his expressions. And I think it's equally true with, with what exists. On the one hand, we can see the development, the unfolding from a seed, from a, an idea of what something is, whether it's a lettuce or a potato. But on the other hand, we can see variety and that variety seems to be as much a characteristic of what exists as uh, the process of development. So that one doesn't simply supplant another. That actually variety is a fundamental of the reality that uh, we live in, that the world exists. Just as we as artists or writers will produce a variety of work, um, variety does seem to be something very basic. We could almost say that creation has this capacity to draw us into it, into, in such a way as we can't exhaust its capacity to be named. It rather has this tendency to be inexhaustible. And so what we see is a multiplicity of sciences, a multiplicity of arts, a multiplicity of endeavors to mm. both investigate the universe and to express um, in human culture what we find, um, whether it's directly related um, to the world around us or whether it's more um, remote in terms of abstractions. But either way, we have a sense of the inexhaustibility, that there's something about the nature of 
reality, that it doesn't just passively exist. It exists in a sense with this um, capacity to draw us out of ourselves. But in going into what exists, there seems to be almost an intimation of eternity in its inexhaustibility. You know, no matter how small we get, we can get, there is something smaller. You know, speaking about the flea on the leg of the flea, you know, Mm -hmm. there is still that small flea that can still be um, enlarged had we the microscope to do it. Or if we go to the scale of the universe, you know, as far as we can go, there seems to be further to go. You know, there is a characteristic of what exists as being its inexhaustibility. And one wonders, you know, isn't this an intimation of the mystery of its very existence? That um, somehow the Creator has made present a mystery in the very existence of matter, in the very existence of the universe, that it has this inexhaustibility about it, almost a kind of intimation of the mystery of God himself. Mm-hmm. It is really amazing when you think of um, how small things can get, and I bet that we haven't even discovered uh, the level to which things can be smaller, um, all the way up to looking at the size of the universe. Um, you know, it really gives you uh, such a sense um, of, you know, God's uh, creative power. It's truly amazing. So from the teeny tiniest little thing, which we probably even don't even know what it is yet, all the way up to the size of the universe and all the diversity and the beauty. The diversity is really beautiful. So, indeed, indeed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Almost in the composition of the human person, you know, what we find is everything takes on, if you like, a personal expression. You know, we are no less matter than anything else that exists. But the matter that we are is subsumed under this capacity to express the person, you know, to make present the fact that um, we aren't just beings in isolation, but rather beings in relationship to one another and indeed in uh, in relation to our creator. So, you know, the very flesh and bones um, that and the properties of skin, and the cells. I mean, everything about us is as material as it can be. But at the same time, the the materiality of our personhood is making visible the fact that we are a person, literally. Um, And that meaning, uh, or that expression, person, According to St. Thomas, it it is that which is the most perfect in existence. And in the first place, he's referring to God. Physicality that we possess, you know, has all these characteristics of the universe in, in terms of, you know, 
the detail that's possible to understand of the nervous system and the synapses and the intricacies in the um, cross currents in the brain between all the linkages between one part and another and then the facial expressions and then the hand movements you know we are as physical as it's possible to be in one sense but our physicality has this um, unique capacity of making present the person so in one sense yes we can look at reality in its um, almost its unreachable depth but at the same time we give a face to it and in that sense uh, again we come back to the possibility of a creator who is personal because on the one hand there is an unreachability in terms of the depths and detail of what exists but on the other hand there is the fact that we are made of so many um, elements of what exists but at the same time we manifest the person and the person according to uh, St. Thomas is that which is most perfect in existence now in the first place he's referring to God but actually in the work of St. John Paul II he takes up this language of the person and really um, explores it and one of the um, background ideas which actually I recall more from the work of Cardinal Ratzinger is uh, one and St. Um, Augustine is person expresses relationship you know, if we think of the three persons in one God, uh, person is also relation. You know, the Father is both the Father of the Son and the origin of the Holy Spirit with the Son. You know, each of the divine persons is a relationship to the other. And so relationship is really fundamental to us in our individuality and so our personhood that is made visible in our flesh is at the same time a person that is capable and indeed exists in relationships I mean the very fact that we're conceived through our parents means that our very existence originates out of the relationship of our parents it, originates out of the act of God which uh, is at the very foundation of our existence so we are beings for relationship and so you know in the dialogue with creation it is a relationship we're expressing the very unreachability of getting to the end of the universe you know draws us into this relationship with it you know of seeking well why is it the way it is why is it so inexhaustible you know and at the same time we give a face because um, this is also the other echo of the creator that we give a face to what exists that materiality has a face it's called a person uh, man and woman so um, perhaps it's time to draw this to a close well I found this to be uh, fascinating especially when you consider there's another 
two books to follow in the same trilogy. So, <laughs> you know, it's uh, I just, I really like this. It's um, just such a richer way, uh, a fuller way of thinking about creation as opposed to these discrete little objects or discrete types of objects. It's a very different way of looking mm. at creation. It's beautiful. You know, I mean, the way of looking so, at it is beautiful. So, um, would you like to conclude with a prayer then, uh, Cynthia? Certainly, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, are you praying, or am I? <laughs> no, I think it's your turn. Okay. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the full Lord grace. is with thee. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art Lord thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Mother of God pray for us sinners. Now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hello, God's beloved. I'm Annabelle Mosley, author, professor of theology, and host of Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. I invite you to listen in and find inspiration along this sacred journey we're traveling together to make our lives a masterpiece and, with God's grace, become saints. Join me, Annabelle Mosley, for Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. God bless you. Remember, you're never alone. God is always with you. Thank you for listening to a production of WCAT Radio. Please join us in our mission of evangelization. And don't forget, love lifts up where knowledge takes flight.